Welcome to Business Done Differently, the podcast about challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game in business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Our guest today is Brent Mensor, former guest on Business Done Differently. Mean James introduced us, and recently I've been blown away by his work. Brent is a legitimate rock star who rocked stages for years playing in Big Kettle Drum Band and in front of thousands of fans. Now he is rocking stages after being named one of the top 10 motivational speakers in the world. His story and his new book, Black Sheep, challenge us all to look at values and decision-making in a completely different way. Brant, I am so fired up to have you on the show today, my friend. Thanks, brother. I've been looking forward to this for weeks and weeks. So I know we've only rescheduled about 13 times, so we finally <laughs> made it happen, which is exciting. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes. Before we get, I mean, Black Sheep, I think it's a, a game-changing book. But before we get into that, I want to go back into your former life. I think there's a lot of interesting similarities to being on stage and trying to create fans. And just tell me about, you know, obviously a little bit about Big Kettle Drum and how you became that really well known for what you guys were doing. Well, we got started late in the rock and roll game. You know, I didn't, uh, I didn't even start until I was 30, which for most is like when you're done, when you're washed up. Yeah. So we decided that we had this opportunity. So we recorded a record, we signed a record deal and started to do, we were sort of the Southern rock and they actually call it red dirt is the genre is red dirt, which unless you're from Oklahoma, Northern Texas, you aren't going to know what red dirt is, but think of it like Southern swampy ACDC. And so that's sort of where we got started, had a lot of success. That album actually has produced the most amount of licensing opportunities for television and movies and the people who have used our music over the years. But we got old really quick and decided we were tired of lugging around 70-pound amplifiers. So we sort of shifted gears and became sort of that Mumford & Sons before Mumford & Sons really hit. And so we did you know, suitcase kick drum and slide guitar, banjo, a little bit of everything. And uh, released a couple of Americana albums. And here we are almost 20 years in the music business. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I sort of retired into the we only do the shows we want to play era, <laughs> which is nice. Not the shows we have to play, but the ones that, you know, mostly charity gigs and a few blues festivals. And it was awesome. It was really, really an incredible chapter in my life. And I'm fascinated on the idea of uh, musicians creating fans. Is there something that you could share? Some of the things maybe you guys did? Obviously, your music was unique. That was a very nice touching point. But what are some things you guys did to create fans? Well, I think the biggest problem is that, that most fans try to go wide. And you shouldn't try to go wide with a fan base. You should try to go deep with a fan base. And so it's a little bit different approach in that way. You know, we got our start in the college market where we were playing 75, 100 colleges a year, which is great from a financial standpoint because they all have budgets and you're getting paid way better than you would going to play the local bar. However, it's awful for trying to build a dedicated fan base because there is no going back every six weeks, eight weeks, two months where you are sort of constantly growing a fan base. You're there and you're gone and you aren't going to come back maybe ever or at the minimum would be a year before they ever bring you back again. And so that made it really hard to build a dedicated fan base. So we sort of switched our model to instead of trying to gather as many as possible, let's find the Uber fans and let's really cater to that. So doing live records, exclusives, merch, 
all these different things that were really designed to find that for us, the goal was a thousand. Can we find a thousand Uber fans that will buy every single thing we put out and all of the exclusives, you know, they care. The music matters to them. It's not just they happen to stumble upon us. They are really people who supported us. And so that's sort of what we did. And it's really the only way we were able to survive without being a household name for almost 20 years. Wow. And I know we're going to get into this, but I think that's so fascinating because it's better to have a thousand people that love you than thousands of people that kind of like you. A huge, huge difference because those Uber fans, those diehard fans will go up above and beyond on everything. They will buy everything that you have. They don't even care. Whatever you have to sell, give it to me. So were anything unique you guys did to help foster that growth? Yeah, we did some projects that really engaged them. So back when sort of Kickstarter first started, we had sort of done that and engaged people with some additional merch things and these limited edition stuff. And then we went to pledge music to fund another record that we did. We signed a couple of record deals, but it's never what you think it is. (laughs) You end up walking away owing more money than you made. And so it's one of those things that we just decided to take it into our own hands. The biggest mistake I think that we made over the course of that time was we worked so hard to generate momentum. And then we just handed it over to a label who doesn't care. (laughs) that you're one of however many horses are in their stable and they don't care as much as you care. And so for us, twice, two different record deals and twice we made the same mistake of all the momentum we got to get that first deal. We just were like, oh, we made it. Let's, yeah, let's do this. And we handed everything over and it just tanked because they had other things that were going on. We weren't their, their only band. And so for us, we lost a lot of momentum. It took years to build that back up. Our second record deal was with a smaller boutique label in New York City. And that one worked out better for us because we tried to maintain some control. But again, you know, when there's more hands in the pot, it makes it hard to just arbitrarily make decisions on what you want to do without including other people who are now responsible for your success. And so the idea was like, we just ended up leaving that second deal and taking everything back to ourselves and determining our own fate. And that was really what allowed us to stay relevant, I think, for the last 10 years or so of our career. There's huge value to that. I've always been a big Dave Matthews fan because of their live shows. And they spent four or five years touring without any signed deals. They were building their fan base organically and owning the fan base. Everyone was going through them. And it's so smart. And you talk about how we foster fans. I think it's really interesting. Last year, many people know this, we had a secret game just for our members. So we didn't announce it. No one knew. And finally, media, people at the games are taking pictures and videos. They're like, what is going on? And it was a secret game just for them without announcing it. And they felt special. I'm sure that private concert that you do, that special thing. And now in speaking, there's huge opportunities for that as well. So all right. I just had to go back into yeah. that lifestyle. You had some big moments that kind of changed your path in regards to developing this whole black sheep. And I know this is an audio, but show me the tattoo. I got to see the tattoo. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> there you go, baby. Yeah. All right. You know, when you get a tattoo of something, you believe it more than anything, my friend. So tell us how you pivoted from rock star traveling, doing all this to where you are now. Forced innovation. It was one of the things that in 2012, my oldest son, was diagnosed with a rare cancer, a blood cancer that was going to require a bone marrow transplant. And it didn't go as we thought it would. And so that made me basically take a year off of touring. And we spent 263 days in the hospital with him battling. And 
when we sort of got through that, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to stay on the road as much as I had been. And so I had to pivot and try to find something else to do. And so I had a buddy that also was sort of coming out of the music business and had started a team building organization called Banding People Together. And they would write original songs with organizations. So they'd go in and break up an organization into several bands and the bands would write these original songs. They'd take them back to the studio and record them just like you'd hear on the radio. And so I got involved with that. So I sort of transitioned from one stage to another and started to do sort of the opening keynote of those sessions where we'd sort of give the overview of collaboration and what does that look like in the music world and how does that translate to the business world. And so I did that for years and years and a few years ago decided to sort of go my own way, still maintaining a partnership with banding people together and the amazing work that they do. But I really started to get heavier into core values and purpose and what that really looks like. And so the research led to me deciding to try to write a book about what I went through with my son in that time and how I made horrible decisions because I didn't have these things defined in my life that were my non-negotiables. And so I allowed my emotions to sort of drive the decision-making process at the worst possible time when you should be making decisions that are, you know, sound in the things that matter most to us. And just don't want people to ever be in that situation that I was in and have to look back with regret for years that you could have done something different. And so that's what led to Black Sheep. The story about your son, I need to share personal on that. I'm reading in a bed and all of a sudden my wife's next to me and I'm like, I can't tell you this. I can't read this. And she's like, okay. Then I immediately started watching. I searched for the video and I watched the video and she's like, what is this, Jesse? And she's like, just read it. And then literally for 40 minutes, my wife is crying. You're to blame for a headache uh, that she had all day because she was crying and she stayed up till midnight. But that defining moment. And I'm sure you share it on every stage. And it's one of the most powerful moments I've read in a book. But it was that that really brought you to your real purpose, it sounds like. It did. You know, we faced this scenario where his name is Theo and he was 14 years old. And when Theo uh, received the bone marrow transplant, it was a non-related donor, but it was a perfect match. So we were feeling pretty good about it. They're in the hospital, two weeks worth of chemo to sort of wipe out his immune system. And they finally give him the bone marrow transplant, which in my head was like, I made it up to be this giant thing of they're going to sort of come in with some machine and it's going to jam the marrow into Theo. And it literally looks like you're getting a blood transfusion. They hang a bag of marrow and it drips at its own pace. And when it's done, you just got a bone marrow transplant. (laughs) It's the least, you can't imagine how uneventful it actually is. So he got it. It went fine. Everybody who gets a bone marrow transplant gets something called graft-versus-host disease, and it is where the marrow that's inserted into the body doesn't recognize the environment that it's being placed into, and so it begins to attack the body. But there are four different levels, so you hope that you get level one or level two, and then what happens is the marrow starts to produce new cells really quickly, and that engraftment period, when it's over, the body just sort of accepts these new cells as what is happening. You're actually blood type changes to that of the donor. And, and all of a sudden, your body accepts it. Well, he had level four, which is not rejection. It's more of a fight. And so the idea here was they had to super suppress his immune system so that it wouldn't kill him because that's what ends up happening. It attacks the organs to the point where the body shuts down. It was mummifying his body so he couldn't move. And so they super suppress the immune system. And during that process, he contracts this deadly fungus. 
that treatment is to super boost the immune system. And so he had two things that were threatening his life with opposite treatments. And so, you know, we get called into the parents' lounge after a couple hundred days in the hospital. And there's a row of doctors in there and they looked at my wife and I and they said, we're so sorry, but there's nothing else we can do. No matter which one we treat, the other's going to take his life. And we don't think he's going to make it through the night. So you should probably go say your goodbyes and call who you need to call. And so, you know, we just weren't prepared for that. We knew it wasn't great, but we didn't think it was dire. So we end up coming back and get his younger brother, walk to the room. His brother's three years younger than him at that point. And we sit on the edge of the bed, you know, and try to find these words to say goodbye. And, you know, I've said it a hundred times, but when you hear your child say, I'm going to miss you, daddy, there's something that it never leaves your psyche ever. And so I'm sitting there trying to be present. Now I've got to call my family. I got to call my relatives who live a thousand miles away and say, you're not going to have time to make it. So I called my younger brother, who's three years younger than I am and said, listen, I'm sorry, bud, but you know, if you're going to say your goodbyes, you're going to have to do it over the phone. And so he did. And he was incredibly distraught. He's a school teacher up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and he's feeling helpless. So he decides he's going to sit on his couch and hold up these poster boards, sort of describing the events as to what was happening in that moment. So, you know, my nephew's dying. We're running out of time. He's got this. We've tried that. If you have any ideas, please help us. He never said a word. He played the song Fix You by Coldplay. And when the song was over, the video was over and he just turned it off and uploaded it to YouTube. So I stayed on the edge of the bed all night with Theo. He made it through the night. And so we're sort of just waiting to see what's going to happen. And my phone is ringing off the hook and I'm trying to ignore it and just be present in the moment with him. And after a few hours, literally my phone is hot from vibrating. And so I pick up the phone, I look at it. There's all these messages and texts from numbers and people that I don't know. I did not know that my brother made the video and uploaded it to YouTube. And by the time I picked up my phone, it had already been seen over 500,000 times. And so I don't know what's going on, but I had a voicemail from a doctor at MD Anderson in Houston who said, hey, I saw this video and there's this new experimental treatment that I don't know that your doctor's aware of. I think it might be able to help and allow you to treat both things at the same time. Would you mind if I had a discussion? So we were like, yeah, absolutely. And then I got a call from Dr. Tim Johnson from Good Morning America who said, you you tell your doctor anybody he wants to talk to in the next 24 hours, get me a list and I'll see if I can't make it happen. And that's exactly what he did. And so we made a list, talked to someone at Dana-Farber up in Boston, a research scientist at Cornell University doing some cutting edge work. And the four doctors put their heads together and they came up with this crazy plan to try to save Theo's life. And it worked. And so we literally went from say your goodbyes to 24 hours later going, I think we have a path to him getting through this and beating this. Theo just turned 23 years old and is going to college for graphic design. He actually designed the cover of the book, the Sheephead logo. The takeaway of this is this, even though we had a fairy tale ending and we know, listen, you can't live on a pediatric oncology ward for a year and not see the realities of pediatric cancer and how many don't survive. But we got through there. And even though we had the ending that most don't, for the next four, five, six years, I went to bed every night with one question in my head, which was, I wonder if he thinks I gave up on him. And it gnawed me. I mean, just really, really sent me swirling into a deep depression. And I just didn't have the things figured out in my life that were my non-negotiables. And now that I had years and years and years later, I look back and go, that moment where I sat on the edge of the bed 
and I tried to find the words to say goodbye, that discussion would have been completely different if I would have known then what I know now. And I could have slept no matter what the outcome was afterwards, but I didn't. I let that emotional tornado suck me into it. And I hate the fact that I made that choice. You know what I mean? And so I've just spent the rest of the time since then, this last eight years now, trying to not only define those non-negotiables for my own life, but making sure that everybody I know does the same so that when some giant storm rolls into their life, they have the tools necessary to make good decisions in that moment and not spend years regretting bad decisions like I have. Thank you for sharing. That's as listeners yeah. know, it's probably the longest I've ever stayed quiet on a podcast, but that story was well worth it and very powerful. And I think one of the big things, obviously so happy for you and Theo and the impact now it's making, but you think about people led by emotions and now you're led by purpose and everyone talks about purpose, find your why all this. And you, you challenge, you say, you know, black sheep, it's a little bit different. And I want to maybe share how you came about yours and then obviously how you're leading everyone else to do it too. Sure. I was 47 years old, Jesse, before somebody told me why black sheep are not valued like the rest of the flock, like the real reason. Hundreds of years of demonizing black sheep, I figured there's a reason, but I never knew it. And so when I found it out, it shocked me at such a level that it was the spark that started this idea for the book. And the reason that farmers don't value black sheep is because a black sheep's wool cannot be dyed. It cannot be twisted or changed into something that it's not. It's 100% authentically original. And when I heard that, I'm like, that is literally my life's goal. And I don't, why are we demonizing this? This is like what everybody should be aspiring to. And so what I realized is that we all have, we all possess this, what I call flock of five black sheep values. These are the values that no matter how much someone wants to try to influence or twist or change you, they simply aren't going to be changed. These are your non-negotiables, just like a black sheep's wool. You're not going to change these things into something that they weren't meant to be. Our personal core values are developed over the course of our lives, and they rarely, rarely change outside of a catastrophic event in your life. And so the idea that we possess these is one thing. The idea that we can actually discover them and use them to live a better life is something completely different. And that's really what the book touches on. I love it. And you talk about how many people are unconscious creators, which I love. And the idea of winging it, share that because I think you're right. We kind of just go through the motions of every day going from thing to thing. Yeah. Listen, I think you experience this just being in at a higher level, right? When you're at a, especially in sports, when you're at a professional level. You played baseball too, right? My friend. I, I had one goal in life, brother, and that was to pitch, to play baseball yeah. and got hurt and, and ended that career. And the whole reason that I went into it to be rock and roll was experiencing that feeling of what it's like to be in control. And similarly in the business world now, I'm incredibly competitive, right? I want to win. I don't just want to win. I want to destroy. I want to crush. I want to make somebody not ever want to play me again. Like that is, that's the level that I'm at. But the hardest thing for me to accept is that we don't control outcomes. And that was a really difficult thing for someone who's a control freak to admit the fact that we don't control outcomes. We can only control the deliberate intention that goes into making decisions. And so how do we do that? Well, we have to discover these non-negotiables because they become the filter of which we sort of launch these decisions from. And if you don't have those things defined, then you're winging it. And to hear that sort of the first time for me as I'm reading and doing the research for this book, and I'm sitting here going, I've been winging it my whole life, but I've been fairly successful. 
And so what's the motivation to try to define these things if I'm already successful? And what I realized is that there's an entirely different level of success when you stop winging it and you start being deliberate with your intention. And the impact that you have is exponential compared to what you think is possible when you're winging it. And so that was difficult for me. And and listen, 99% of us are winging it. If you can't tell me, if you can't identify what your black sheep values are, then you're winging it. And I can promise you, I've asked tens of thousands of people in the last year what their non-negotiables are. And they go, you know, they give me a couple and then they have a list of 30. And it's like, well, those aren't non-negotiables. Those are things that are important to you, but they are not things that you draw a line in the sand and say, not today. And so that requires serious work that most of us just aren't. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's someone, you know, two years ago, I developed my energy list and I was like, all right, what are the things that give me energy? And I started saying, you know what? It's creating, sharing, and growing. And like those three things, if I'm in those mix, it's giving me energy. And then I went through your assessment and I have hundreds of words to choose. And I'm like, there's a lot of words on here. And like, I like the words. Yes. Narrow it down to 30. And then I'm picking five and I'm looking at this and I, I turned to my wife, Emily, and I'm like, Emily, she's like, I don't know, Jesse, like these are, you're this, you're this, you're this. It is very, very difficult, but it's very important. Share, because I think everyone should go through this exercise because it's self-awareness is one of the best things to be successful. How do you break it down? For me, I have five and I'm still like, I'm not sure if those are the five. I know it gives me energy, but I don't know if those are my black sheep. Yeah, a hundred percent. And so the way that the assessment works and anybody can take it, it's free. It's at findyourblacksheep.com. Simply click on find your flock. And what it does is it's an assessment that really works in three parts, right? So the first part is it presents you with 125 commonly held personal core values. And it sort of asks you to say, look, I just want you to read these words quickly. Don't think too hard. Just read them quickly. And if the word resonates with you, if it's really important to you, just go ahead and select it for now. And after doing this for a couple of years and having thousands of people take the assessment, we have some really interesting data. And so what we know is that the average person selects at least 30 words out of those 125. These are things that they deem really, really important to them. Well, that's where the challenge starts because when there's 30 things that are incredibly important to you, there's really nothing that's incredibly important to you because you can't honor 30 things on a daily basis. And you'll find in this methodology that you have to honor them on a daily basis if you want them to be there when you need them. And so the idea of these values is we need to narrow it down, right? So you take that bucket of subset of words now. So, you know, 30, 40, 50 words, however many you selected, and you have to put them into five different buckets based on likeness, right? So things like empathy, sympathy, caring for others, that will all go in one bucket and things like achievement, success, accountability, those go into another bucket. Before you know it, all of those words are separated into five different buckets based on likeness, and you get to pick one word from each bucket. What's the one word you can't live without? And that's where it gets really difficult, right? Because people don't really get what non-negotiable means. It doesn't mean that you don't like it. Anything other than the answer is no. It's no without explanation. If it violates that, it's no. And people have a hard time getting to that because They've got all these things wrapped up in sort of their history as to why they feel this way, because these are things that have been developed over the course of their entire life. So we know when you get to the five, that two or three of them are 100% authentically real, and two or three of them are complete fabrication. They're either who you want to be, or they're who somebody told you you should be, 
or they're somebody else's sheep altogether. You're caring for someone else's sheep. And that's totally normal. But that's why it takes this work to really discover which ones can you find proof of in which the proof simply doesn't exist. I love that. What's the one word you can't live without? So it's interesting. If you got to start with one, you almost start with one. You start with 30, but all right, there's one. You can actually go backwards, reverse engineer that. Because I'm thinking too, Grant, it's those times when you're at your best. You know, the times where you're just like, you're singing and no, you're like loud, you're dancing. You're not paying attention. Like what is happening? I think about those moments. Because yeah. in some ways, have you seen people reverse engineer it that way too? To say, all right, the best moments in their life, what was all coming together? Yeah, that's what Maslow would call peak experiences, right? And so peak experiences can be both positive or negative, right? It could be a really horrible scenario that you experienced and said, I never want to experience that again, or I'm never going to be that type of person or whatever that might be. So those peak experiences, that's the long road. And and to be honest with you, it's the more accurate road, but it requires an enormous amount of vulnerability and an enormous amount of being willing to have a bone crushingly honest conversation with yourself. And, and most of us are not at that level where we can do that. Honestly, we can have a partially honest conversation with ourselves, but not a completely honest conversation. So this assessment is like dipping your toe in the pool so that you can sort of get an idea to start the conversation and then be able to dive deeper at your own pace rather than being overwhelmed by having to remember a potentially negative experience from your past. 100%. Well, it's just starting to become aware. All right, we're going to go into a game because I want a potential peak experience here. We got really deep for a while, which I love. Now we're going to mix it up. This game, uh, we'll call this the second inning stretch. Uh, And we'll call this truth and dare. Which one would you like? Which one would you like first? Let's go with dare. Dare. All right. The game we do at the stadium, Brad, it's called the sing-off. We have 2,000 mm-hmm. people in one grandstand versus 2,000 people in another grandstand. When the song stops, you have to finish that song lyric. You're a rock star, okay. so I'm going to go your way. And this might even fit with the theme of what they shouldn't be doing, winging it. All right, you ready? Here we go. Okay. Yep. Perfect. And you, you actually leaned all the way back in full. I was going to blow the mic out. <laughs> Listen, John Bon Jovi's got a high voice, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I think you hit it. And uh, I think the audience is, uh, wow. All right. You guys are blown yeah, away. The lung. Good well, God. See, it was strategic. Living on a prayer. All right. It's that you got actually got to go with intention, Brant. There was a method to the madness there. All right. Like it. And you felt like it out. It. I could have sung one of your own songs, but I was like, I'm going to go big time here. All right. Yeah, that, you hit that. You ready for your truth? Let's do it. All right, truth. So you just belted out, and now we're going to go truth. What is something that's still holding you back from greater success today? I would say the willingness to be 100% honest about what it's going to take to get to the next level with myself. So sometimes the people who get you to where you are are not the people to take you where you want to go. And that is an incredibly difficult crossroads for entrepreneurs, especially to face, right? Because you love these people. They've done a phenomenal job, but they don't possess the skill sets that you need to take it to the next level. And that requires a shuffling up of your time, of how much time you're going to devote to those relationships. It can be a very painful process of pruning your life in that way. I'm very loyal when it comes to the people I love in my life. And so I know that it's going to take something more 
than I have right now to get to that Brene Brown, that Simon Sinek level. And so it's just, yeah, that's a real tough one. It's so good because in your book, you talk about the 15 closest people and narrowing it down there. And it is this, this pruning, but it's also like in the upper limit problem. Sometimes do we have this upper limit that we don't feel like that we deserve that, but how does the black sheep fit into this mindset of getting around the people that you should be around to help get you to the next level? The interesting part of sort of the farmer's story, while they don't value black sheep the same way as they do the rest of the flock, that doesn't mean that they don't possess value at all. They do. They just have it in a very different way. So farmers use one black sheep for every hundred white sheep in their care as a marker. And so every morning a sheep farmer will wake up, they'll look out over the flock. And if they've got 500 sheep in their care, they should see five black sheep. It's the black sheep's ability to stand out from that crowd that gets the farmer's first look, right? And so the idea here is you need to be leading with those black sheep values because when you lead with those values, you get people's first look. You know, I think you guys are the perfect case study of showing what that looks like to get someone's first look. You have to lead with the things that matter most to you because it makes you stand out from the 495 other sheep that look exactly the same. And so you're able to lead with those values. And when you do, you get everybody's first look. And that's my goal. I want your first look. I want my client's first look. I want my family's first look. And that only happens when they see and recognize those black sheep values. That's why I have it tattooed on my arm. It's a reminder that if I'm not leading with those values, I'm not going to get anybody's first look ever. And then with that, you'll attract the right people, correct? Because you're trying to get to that right circle, the people that will help you there. And we may be actually trying to attract the wrong people because we are not shouting from a rooftop, from the mountaintop, this is who we are. Someone that's crazy enough to wear a yellow tuxedo all the time. Someone that gets a tattoo of a black sheep on Like, that's what you're saying. That's exactly right. You know, the idea here is that people recognize authenticity. They also recognize when you're faking it. Yes. (laughs) And most of us, when we're winging it, are faking it because you're not doing anything on purpose. The only time they experience authenticity is by accident um, or uh, this, this rare occasion where things align. And that's just not ever going to get it done. It's not going to get you to consistent, sustainable, high performance ever. So you've got to define these things if you want to do anything in your life on purpose. And when you start doing stuff on purpose, people recognize and respond to that like nothing you've ever seen. I love it. You've talked about action steps that people can take about writing down their their words before they go into meetings. I have a trigger is that every door I go into, I say, bring the fun, bring the energy. And that's, yeah. that's my trigger. And it's almost like, I'm not saying fun and energy are my words. Now I have to reimagine all that. But is that how you use them? Like if you're going into an important meeting, if you're going to speak to a group, do you recite those in your head? What do you do? Yes, I plan prior to it if possible, right? So every night before I go to bed, I look at the calendar that I have for the next day. And whatever I have for appointments, you will see not just who the appointment is with in the time, you're going to see one to, to six words written in there. And those are the black sheep values that I am bringing to that conversation. And I've thought through how I'm going to actually engage those things. So I don't leave it up to luck or chance. I'm actually speaking them into existence. I'm choosing when and where they appear. And by doing that, I'm taking far more control over influencing a potential outcome, even though I can't control it. 
I'm going to influence it by the deliberate intention that I'm using to make these decisions. And so that is how I do it. So every single, you know, I knew coming into here, one of my black sheet values is creativity. I have to show up with creativity if I'm going to be doing a podcast interview with you. So, you know, those are the sorts of things that I have to really think through. How am I going to do that? And so that's how we bring our unique contribution. And if you really want that success, that unique contribution only comes through the filter of those black sheep values. I love it. All right, well, let's lean on that creativity, man. You set it up right on a tee for me. Let's look All at right. creativity from a marketing and business standpoint, doing it differently. How yep. can black sheep lead to or towards marketing and doing business differently? If I can't see your black sheep values in your content creation, you're winging it. Okay. And it's never going to resonate. Not like you want it to. You know, the idea here is, you know, I work a lot in this space with creatives, right? So I deal with interior designers, I deal with photographers, I deal with all these different organizations that have thousands and thousands of people that are required to take X amount of hours of classes to keep their certifications over the course of a year. And so as I'm working with them, one of the things I say to photographers is this, do you understand that if you don't discover what your black sheep values are, you've never taken an original photograph your entire life? <laughs> Fires them up. Right? You've only given me a reflection of what matters to somebody else. Yeah. And that's the same way with your content creation. Are you showing us, are you leading with those black sheep values that are 100% authentically, it's what makes you, you and nobody else, or are you giving us a reflection of what matters to someone else? If that's the case, it's only going to reflect to the people who resonate with that, but it has nothing to do with you because it's not you. It's a reflection of someone else. So you've got to use these values to curate content that resonates as authentic or it's simply not ever going to connect on the level that creates Uber fans. It will create Fairweather fans who come yeah. when it's convenient. So like for us, all the content we put out on our team, we don't want it to be generic. We don't want it to be boring. We want it to be completely dramatically different than anyone else is doing. We want it to create an emotional reaction of, holy, wow, what is happening right now? This is bizarre, crazy, wild, outrageous, fun. And we want to make people feel like they want to be there with us. So yeah. it would just be, if that's how we kind of try to do it, we're kind of doing it, but we maybe haven't narrowed down on this one word or two words, even though we do have our core beliefs, but maybe just sure. go a little deeper on that. Is that what you would suggest? Yeah. So the idea is you don't have to have all of your black sheep values in yeah. every content piece that you yeah. put out, but you want it to resonate with at least one, right? And so yeah. the idea is what are you going to focus on? What you're going to find is that the ones that are most successful, it's like a buffet for your black sheep. There's so much there that they're hitting on all cylinders. Yeah. And because of that, it resonates at a different level as opposed to maybe just showing one of those things that matter most to you. I love this. You know, what you're doing and what's so powerful, and you did with the story, you did with the black sheep is, is creating emotional connections. And yeah. what I love, Brad, it's the stats are staggering. You know, everything we look at, how do you go from being unremarkable to being unforgettable? And the companies that are unforgettable create three times the amount of emotional connection than any other brand. And they're getting people talking about it. When you talk yep. about the values, that's what you do. Yeah. It, yeah. 100%. You know, the interesting thing, so in the music business, you know, I relate these values and organizations have their own black sheep values, right? So we have our own personal values, but then organizations have their values. And so the, the challenge becomes, can we build bridges between the two if they're not shared, right? And so the idea becomes, how do you do that? Well, these to me are your hit songs as an organization. And so if you look at that in the United States, a hit song is played 
about 10,000 times a week. That's where a hit is at if you're looking at the spins on radio. And so when you look at 10,000 spins, that breaks down to about once every three to four hours in every market in the United States. And so when you look at that and understand that there's only two reasons why a song becomes a hit. The first is the responsibility of the songwriter and the second is the responsibility of the promotional. So the songwriter's job is to do one thing, connect the head and the heart. If you connect the head and the heart, it engages your limbic brain and your limbic brains where all of your emotional long-term memory is stored and it's why you remember song lyrics. So you want somebody to remember something after the first time they hear it, it has to connect your head and your heart. If that's done, then great. Your job is done. Now it was the radio station who's got to get this stuff out on the air. So if we look at that 10,000 number and know that it's once every three to four hours in every market, let's look at how that translates to the business world, which is, are your organizational values seen, heard, experienced once every three to four hours at work? If the answer is no, it's not a hit and it's never going to be a hit. So you've got to not only understand that the frequency of which these things are experienced is super important, but how are they being experienced? How are those black sheep values being represented? Because that's what people will connect to. And if you say one thing and do something else, you're creating this dissonance. And, and if you've ever heard dissonance, you know it's not pleasing to the ear. I love it. Focus on what you can control. You know, that's so powerful. You can say it over and over as a leader. You can keep coming back over and over and over again and sharing it. I think that's so powerful. I think what's great is the greatest speakers, the greatest motivators, the greatest authors, they get you to really think and reflect and go back and say, all right, are we doing this right? How do we do it better? And when you get me paused, I'm usually like jumping around high energy. I'm like, all right, you've got, you're at the right place, but I'm going to let you grill me because I've been grilling you a little bit. So this is flip the script. You are now the business done differently. You can ask me one question. I want to know what your flock of five are. (laughs) All right, good. Well, when I did this, I'm saying I wrote this when I was still going through the book. And I think some of them may be aspirational. I wrote progress, creativity, happiness, freedom, and optimism. Those were my five. But when I look at it, I'll share this. You said you have six, which I want to get into your six. For me, success, I'm an Enneagram three. So success drives me an achievement, but I wrote progress because I'm again standing still. So that's why yep. I went there. And then optimism is something I carry around me all every day. So those are sure. my five or six. All right. What about yours? So mine are creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, and authenticity. I have an extra. Yes, you do. Yes. Which one do you lean to the most? Have you noticed? Hope. Hope. Yeah, that's not that. So the interesting thing is, you know, our values exist in a hierarchy, right? And so there are certain values that possess more weight. And for me, the very top of that hierarchy is hope. And so the idea for myself is every interaction I have, whether that's online, creating content, a meme, having an interview, a discussion, if I don't leave that with hope, either providing hope for someone else, then I have not fed that sheep and shame on me. Uh, I love it. Very powerful for someone that's inspiring people on a daily basis, having that word. When I look at yours, here's the interesting thing. So the idea is once you sort of figure out what you think is real, now you have to prove that they're real. And the way that you prove it is you have to track these sheep. I call it counting sheep, right? So every night before you go to bed, you've got a workbook and you are going to be looking at these things and you're going to go back through your day in your head and you're going to say, did I experience these organically? Did they just show up in my life? 
And every time they show up, you make a hash mark and you talk about what was the scenario? Where did it show up? Who was it with? And when you start to track these things, you see that some of them appear all the time. They're ubiquitous, right? They're everywhere. Well, that means not only are they real, they're probably towards the top of your hierarchy, right? If they don't show up all that much, we have to find out why. Are they not your sheep at all? Is this someone else's sheep? Did you grow up having to care for siblings or an elderly grandparent or something like that where you're used to caring for other people's sheep? Are you self-sabotaging yourself so you're not even allowing this to come to the surface for whatever particular reason? And so we have to look at those reasons. Sometimes it's because we've gotten too narrow with our focus. And so when we get really narrow, unless we have a very specific circumstance, we're not going to experience that particular value. So we have to do what I call leveling up. So if you told me that community, faith, and family were three of your black sheep values, I would tell you that none of those are probably your black sheep value. The value is connection. And you just gave me three really powerful ways that you experience connection. I got a question there. Yeah. So for me, I had 15 of them were all achievement, success, growth, progress, wisdom, knowledge. They were all in one. And then you say you only take one from that. And so that was a challenge for me because I only had a couple in the other boxes. So, but what did that also show that there's a big, big flock there of black sheep in that main section? That shows that that something in that deal is going to be way higher on your hierarchy because it's obviously something that's way more important to you than some of these other ones that didn't have even just the words to choose from over the course. The the shift that you have to make is understanding that you don't control outcomes, which will change. So I love that you picked progress because progress doesn't necessarily mean winning. Progress doesn't necessarily mean incredible success. It just means moving forward. And that is not only realistic, it's actually something that you can find evidence of in small doses all day long. And that is really important, right? But I look and so... If I'm looking at a couple of these things, happiness, freedom, and optimism are three that I would challenge you on to find proof, right? So I believe progress and creativity are without question, 100% authentically real. And you can give me 50 different examples for each of those over the course of your life. When I look at these, it's not that they're not incredibly important to you. I believe they are. But when you say freedom, I have no idea what you mean by that. So one of the things that we do as an exercise in this sort of next wave of proving what's real is you have to define what you mean because freedom to someone might be being able to live in a democracy, but to others, freedom might be, I'm going to go to Chipotle today because damn it, I want Chipotle. And you know, it's like, it's such a huge word that you have to define what you mean by it so that you know what you're looking for. Otherwise it's really difficult. Same thing with faith. I get that a lot. And I get what you mean by it, but at the same time, I have no idea what you mean by it. Because so it's part of your life, but it's not like, yeah, that, that's the it's thing. It's a when huge I, word, yeah. right? Right. When I think of freedom, it's like, for me, it's independence. The ability to do what I want, when I want, with the people I want. And I've never worked for anyone ever. And I just, I don't think I could, you know, I'm unemployable. And so that, but again, that's still a yeah. big word. Great point. Great point. Yeah. You got me going. All right. We got to finish up, Brad. We could be talking about this for a while, which is good. This is a complete shift to business done differently. I like it that you completely challenged it. You asked that question, but I want to know, are there other questions that you're asking right now of people that help you find a better answer, help them find a better answer? 
So there's two sort of things for me here that I work on. I try to get people to obviously discover what these non-negotiables are in their life. That's the first part. The second part is in service of what? In service of what? Why are you doing this? Right? So it's not just discovering these non-negotiables. You have to figure out what they're in service of. What's that thing you're striving for so that you can figure out this plan to honor them on a daily basis and find proof that it's working. Because when we have proof, we don't need belief. And most of us spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves of something that we need to have belief because we don't have proof. But when you have proof, you just acknowledge proof. You don't have to actually believe anything. It's just there it is right there. And so can we find proof? And so for me, when we discover our black sheep, it allows us to choose our purpose, not find our purpose, choose our purpose. And so we do that by activating those words, right? So for me, creativity, hope, impact, empathy, family, authenticity. My purpose is to creatively impact others by authentically providing hope. It sounds familiar because it's loaded with those values. So the what and the why are in alignment with each other. And when they're in alignment, it makes me incredibly adaptable and resilient on how I'm going to honor those things. And so that is the in service of what. I love it. I love it. Uh, I want to share one quote with the listeners. An aimless how can keep you busier than a mosquito at a nudist colony. Very well said. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that there. We don't even have to explain that. We're just going to leave that there, Brent, because that made me laugh considerably. Well played. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Final, final four quickly here. Um, yep. time. What's one thing someone can do right now to put this into play with their actual company? They can literally sit down with their black sheep and the organizational values and draw bridges to each as to how you're going to use your value to amplify the organizational value. Brilliant. All right. What's the best advice you would give to someone right now? Maybe coming out, graduating college, Theo getting out of college or graphic design. What would you tell someone to help them stand out business and in life? The most important, the most valuable thing you possess in your life are these things, period. There is nothing. There is nothing that you can compare them to. They literally are the most important thing in your life. They are what hold your brokenness together. And until you recognize that that's the case, you're going to make a ton of really bad decisions until you decide to stop weighing it. The non-negotiables. What's great is you talked about a great hit. You're talking about it. comes on once every three or four hours. How often are you talking about these black sheep values? Probably probably more. (laughs) A lot. These days, it's a lot. But here's the thing. Once you do this, there's a five-week program that we run through to get, not just discover them, but teach you how to speak them into existence and program them into your day it becomes a lifestyle, right? It becomes a habit so that I don't need to track anymore because I know what I'm doing. I'm naturally approaching every meeting with these things at the forefront. And when that becomes the way that you start to live your life, it's really easy six months, nine months, a year later to do a gap analysis when you're not feeling quite great about what's going on in your life to see which sheep are not being fed. And that really helps right the ship pretty quickly. I love it. Living in the moment, speaking of the existence. The other quote I saw you used earlier, you shared was from the Chinese philosopher, which I love. If you are depressed, you are living in the past. If you're anxious, you are living in the future. If you are at peace, you are living in the present. I love that, Brant. All right, final two here. All right, this one you've probably never been asked before, but I'm going to ask it for you. What does going bananas mean to you? To me, it's like unabashed uh, excitement and energy. 
Perfect. Last one here. What makes someone unforgettable? Leading with those things that make you 100% authentic, original that you are. Keep staying strong. Keep repeating it. Staying true to the values, man. You killed it. I am so glad Neem introduced us. I've been following you for the last couple of months. And is there anything you want to leave my crazy listeners with? Be like, Jesse, this is a very serious podcast. Well, it's very important. We need to get it right. And Fred, I am so excited and so thrilled to be able to talk with you and, and become a friend and share this. So anything else you want to leave the, our amazing listeners with? Uh, listen, just encouragement that no matter what you're going through right now, we were told that we were facing an impossible situation, but that wasn't true. The truth is when you have hope, anything is possible. And so keep that hope alive, figure these things out. And I promise what's possible in your life will change. Love it, my friend. Thank you so much. You bet. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe that challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered in this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.